It seems like a long time since we've seen each other, doesn't it? And I am really grateful you're here. Tonight, Ms. Armstrong is here with a book and a philosophy that I think of as companion to the northern conservationists and writers that I know we admire in this part of the world. Here's Sigurd Olson on the power of nature. In wilderness, people can find the silence and the solitude and the non-civilized surroundings that connect them once again to their evolutionary heritage. Listen to Winona LaDuc. I'm not a patriot to a flag. I'm a patriot to the land. And I consider Terry Tempest Williams an honorary Minnesotan. She's just incredible. I love these words of hers. Wildness reminds us what it means to be human what we are connected to rather than what we are separate from. Karn Armstrong writes in her new book, if we develop a mind that watches and receives and discover the fluidity of our natural environment, we may be able to recover some of our ancestors' vision of a sacred nature. Karn Armstrong's new book is titled Sacred Nature, Restoring Our Ancient Bond with the Natural World, Please give her the warmest Fitzgerald Theater welcome. You are loved here. You are among friends. I hope you know that. Well, I wouldn't get that at home. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about that. Uh, Okay, what does Karn Armstrong read when she wants a sexy thriller? Sorry? What does Karen Armstrong read when she wants a sexy thriller? A sexy thriller? Yes. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a whole list that I can share. Okay, what do you read when you're not immersed in religious texts or research? What do you read to take your mind away from what you're studying. Oh, I read novels. Okay. I read novels, um, and uh, often quite repeatedly. Uh, I I like reading things that I've read a second time. And I read the classics, uh, Dickens, uh, Thackeray, Mm -hmm. Jane Austen, a great favorite of mine. Uh Beautiful, beautiful writing. But also modern people. Um, um, But I love novels. I love getting immersed in, in, in a story and, uh, and, and, and imagining different worlds right. and living in a different world uh, parallel to one's own. I, I love that. Hey, poetry, too. What is your most sublime reading experience? My most sublime reading experience? I think it's been Shakespeare. Ah. Um, the, the, the language... Uh, the, the the brilliance of the iambic pentameter, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep no more. And by sleep to say we end the heartache that the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. And I once heard uh, someone, I was once taught how that sounded to Shakespeare's time. 
How did it sound? Quite different. It's more like to obey or not to obey. That is the question. Huh. Whether it is nobler in the minder to suffer the slingers and arrows of Utraju's fortune. Heartache becomes hair touch. Ha. Huh. Uh, uh, you see, our language has changed so right. much over, over, over the years. Uh, he's, he's really re- quite close to what we call Middle English, mm-hmm. medieval English still. Uh, we're moving certainly into modern English, but it's the old, uh, the old pronunciations are still there. I think from listening to that, it would be difficult, I think, for a modern audience member to be at the Globe Theatre to understand we, what was happening. We, we probably under- wouldn't, we right? Wouldn't. We probably wouldn't, no, no. Uh, and uh, I, I only know about that because I, I was studied uh, English language at Oxford. I wondered how, how that, has, that um, paragraph or two has imprinted itself on your well, mind. Well, I, I just liked it so much, uh, especially hair touch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so we studied the history of the language, starting mm-hmm. off with uh, Anglo-Saxon, and, and then moving in, in, and reading great poems like Beowulf. And I had a, a very old professor, a very distinguished Anglo-Saxon professor who taught. And he used to make us write essays in Anglo-Saxon. Wow. I don't think, oh I, don't, I, don't think I could do it now uh, because I, I've sort of, that's, that's left behind me rather. But, um, but I, I did love that. And I, I, I love the, 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 the whole idea of the language evolving mm-hmm. and changing. Um, and... and Wondering what what Shakespeare would have make now if he saw his plays acted uh, right. in modern English. Right. So, were your parents big readers? Was no. there poetry in your house? No novels. No. No, not at all. Um, I was ve- I was very lucky because my parents didn't have a good education. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother went to a sort of Catholic school which seems to have taught nothing at all. She's very, she's very clever. But no, because she's very, very clever. And when my father went bankrupt, uh, she had to take a job. Now, that was the 1950s when middle-class women didn't take jobs. And she managed to get a job as a sort of secretary in the a medical school at Birmingham University. And she did so well. She, they, they gave her research to do. Wow. And they, uh, when she died, I wrote a piece about her uh, in the Guardian newspaper. And um, one of the professors read, wrote to me, and he said that really her research was so good, they had to include her in the byline. Huh. You see, uh, both my parents were clever, but my grandmother too. But they, they didn't have an education. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, that, that makes your life so sterile. Mm-hmm. My grandma, you see, and my mother had a very difficult childhood uh, because my grandmother, whom I love dearly, and in many ways, not always, as you see, but uh, in many ways, I'm rather like her. I'm this only small member of our family 
all the others are very tall. I could never reach any of the cups. <laughs> uh, and um, they, she, but she, she would be was bored. She, my grandfather was out all day at his shop. He was a chemist, and he had spent four years in the trenches of World War One, and had learned really just to cut off from white. It was the only way he you could probably survive that mm. that horror. And so she used to get drunk. Uh, she was an alcoholic. Hmm. And my mother would come home and find her drunk every day. And uh, so there was great... She had... And her older sister was so damaged. Uh, my mother was, had, had her difficulties, but the older sister was so damaged that she just left her own children. Wow. Uh, it's very rare for oh people, mothers to leave their children. Right. Um, and they, they had to come and live with us. And we, uh, they were very sort of themselves very distressed children, as mm. you can imagine. So the ch- my childhood was uh, difficult, and reading, to me, was uh, a, a wonderful escape mm-hmm. to another world, other worlds, uh, which were, uh, and I, it gave me an idea that there were other worlds. How old were you when your father had to declare bankruptcy? Because that's a traumatic... Yes. I was, I was about 13 or 14. So you remember clearly what oh. this meant for the family. Yes. Oh, yes. Though we were never told it. It was all sort of secret. But of course we get, knew that something was dreadfully wrong. Right. And my father just sitting at home all day. Um, and, um, and of course my school fees had to be paid by a charity. Uh, because I didn't take the 11 plus, mm-hmm. which could have got me a, a, a free place. So, um, so it, it, life wasn't easy. And, and it may be that was why I went into a convent, mm-hmm. to find a, a serenity um, and a depth that away from this set that sadness and anxiety that I had uh, because of all this. Uh, you also, it sounds like, this, this is uh, the first description I remember in any of your books about how important the natural environment and where yes. you grew up was. Describe, describe this area of England. Yes. Uh, it's West Central England, isn't it? No, no. Oh. It, it's um, just it's outside Birmingham. Okay. In the Midlands. In uh, the Worcestershire, Midlands. Worcestershire. Okay. Um, but it, in those days, it was countryside. Uh, it was about 15 miles away from Birmingham. Okay. And I used to go to school. I had to, went to school in Birmingham. My father would drive me in. Um, and that was 15 miles in those days with little tiny uh, lanes and not very fast cars. It took a long time to get there. It would be no, no distance at all now, of course. But uh, it was unspoiled country. We had, we had there's a little village called Wildmoor, mm-hmm. which consisted of four houses. Um, and um, we rented one of them. And, um, and we used to go into the woods. Uh, and that's where I, as I write there, that I used to see uh, in the woods uh, a strange kind of luminous a light, uh, a, not, nothing, ve- nothing very 
uh, like like ordinary light. Some, and I, I used, kept pointing it out to my parents and calling it putch. I, was, I guess I couldn't speak very well. Putch, I said. And, and they said, yes, darling. Uh, in a, uh, uh, and, and I think they thought I was talking, tried to, pretending that there were fairies there. And when I used to go out for walks, I had to stop and talk to certain uh, bushes and special bushes and special trees. When my mother was pushing my sister in the, in the pram, uh, we'd had to stop while I went and said hello to all these people. So for me, the, the, the landscape was alive. And I think, as I say in my book, that that's what I felt Wordsworth was, yes. uh, was t- saying in his wonderful poem, where he says there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turned wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, there hath passed away a glory from the earth. That these, uh, his uh, he, he remembers those. I think perhaps children do see things. Uh, have their brains are, are slightly different, and you haven't learned uh, rationalism yet uh, and logic. And you and that's good. Learned, you haven't learned to define things. Right. A word that means to set limits on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your imagine. I was you used to live in my imagination. I think. And uh, that, though I wasn't a Wordsworth, of course. Uh, you, you talk about the radiance of the landscape that you mm. were growing up in. I always think it's interesting about how the childhood landscape is influential in the way a writer accesses their imagination or remembers the meaning of their surroundings. Well, what would you say today about how important that it's crucial I think uh, because we know we're in terrible trouble with the natural world Uh, we know that we're in great danger and we mistreated it and as I try and write in this book and I I show how people saw nature in other parts of the world Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they didn't. They had a very different notion of religion or, or God. And I liked. There's a story that uh, when um, the, the, the Jesuits in the 17th century, the Jesuit priests uh, went out as missionaries to China, and they lived. They wore Chinese clothes and they learnt Chinese, and they were going to convert them all to Christianity. Uh, they didn't succeed in that, of course. Um, but uh, the Chinese uh, were very interested in Western science uh, they, because they, they, they'd, they'd Galileo and Copernicus and all those things that have caused a lot of trouble and distress in Europe at the time um, because it was, they were quite shocking ideas. Uh, the Chinese took all that science in, in, their, in their stride. They, they, they thought it was wonderful. But when they started hearing the Jesuits talking about a god uh, stuck in a tiny part of the universe that he's supposed to have created way above the earth, they thought this was really weird. 
um, and they they couldn't get their head around this. And one of them said that uh, you know that that the, uh, the 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 Jesuits are very good in material investigation, but they don't understand the chi. And the chi is what the Chinese called uh, was their was their sacrality. Uh, it wasn't a god, but it was a, a force. A force that infused the whole of the that brought the whole world into being. It was constantly churning, uh, producing things, uh, uh, producing new things. Uh, it was present in every single mountain or rock or tree or sea, um, and constantly uh, keeping the world in motion. And it was a, a sacred force and. Interestingly, thousands of miles away, the people of India developed exactly the same kind of uh, divinity. There were gods, but the gods were created by this force, uh, like trees and mountains. Um, and uh, they called the, the, uh, the Indians called it Rita or Brahman. And um, this. Uh, it, this seems to have been an archetypal idea. And I think it's very important. We had some Wordsworth just now. Yes. But uh, Wordsworth, he, said he, he saw nature die, be, lose that sacrality, lose that sense of the divinity there within it. And he said he'd learned in a to look on nature differently. In one of his great poems, he said, I have learned to look at nature differently. And I think we've got to try and do the same now. And what he comes out with is exactly like what the Chinese saw and what the Indians saw in Chi and Rita. He says, for I have learned to look at nature uh, in a different way, hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity nor harsh, nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. And that is a perfect uh, description of what the Chinese call qi, something that roll, this sacred force that rolls through all things. And notice, he won't call it God. He says something. Now, we use the word something, don't we, very loosely. <laughs> uh, what shall we have for supper today? Or I don't know, uh, right. you know soup or something. Right. Um, but he, is, he uses words very precisely. It's something. We can't, we, don't, we can't name it because it isn't in our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is something that, we, uh, that, is, that rolls through all things, that keeps things in being.
And that's how the Chinese called it qi, the Taoists called it Dao, the way, uh, and Brahman and Rita. And so, uh, so uh, ingrained is it in the human mind that it, it emerges in Christianity and Judaism too. Uh, because Judaism and Christianity, where other religious re- religions saw the divine in nature, uh, Jews and Christians saw the divine in historical events, mm-hmm. in like the exodus from Egypt or um, the birth, the, the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, but, um, the, but in the Jewish Kabbalah, you have something just like uh, Chi Rita Brahman. They see the divine uh, emanating out from itself like a great force and bringing everything into being and constantly uh, uh, churning out and and constantly imbuing the whole world with life and holiness. Um, and it, it emerged, emerges too with the, with the Greek Orthodox who, have, who never lost their ancient sense, their pagan sense of nature uh, because their goddess Artemis was one of the most worshipped of all the gods uh, and she was in every single flower, every single tree, every single cloud, every river, but you never saw her. Uh, she was just there, present, uh, keeping everything in being. Uh, and, and, and that, we've lost that. Interestingly, um, Islam uh, has a much better understanding of nature than the other two monotheisms. Um, <clears throat> Islam um, uh, says that nature is... A, a revelation of the divine that is equal to the Quran, and uh, constantly in, in the Quran you have these wonderful paeans in praise of nature, which is extraordinary when you think that this came into being in Saudi Arabia with that terrible climate, yeah, um, where they were, where they they they, they, they could not. Uh, so barren and and hot and awful was it that they could not grow enough food for themselves and were constantly having to sort of take it from one another. Uh, They were all half-starved. And yet you have this paean of praise in nature. But unlike uh, the monotheists, um, where we focus on God's miracles that overturn nature... Uh, that do unnatural things. Right. Uh, in the Quran, it's the uh, orderliness of nature, that the fact that the sun rises every morning mm-hmm. and sinks every night, which we, we, and which is exactly the way the Egyptians saw uh, their, their religion. Uh, they, followed, they thought the, uh, they would follow the, 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 the path of the sun, which is all very clear in Egypt, and follow the sun, the priests, uh, all day as it rose up to the sky and went down at night and then it went into the world of the dead at night and died a death and had to be brought to life again in the morning so that it could rise again. Uh, so this, I, these poetic ideas, but it also shows the fragility of nature there, a sense that, uh, that the sun might not rise in the morning. We shouldn't take it for granted 
that nature will always be so orderly and, and kind to us. I think that leads us to, I, I think I would call this the urgent call mm. in the book to not, you're concerned about how removed mm-hmm. we have become from nature, yes. that we experience it, experience it episodically, we're often, you know, taking pictures. <laughs> we are removed and not immersed yes. in nature. What do you think the consequence of that has been? Well, I think the consequence is, is, is it has been drastic. And we're, get, we're, doing, we're increasing this now. I mean, it's getting worse. Um, because um, uh, we, we, we don't see the divine as sacred. We see it simply as a resource. Mm-hmm. And this happened in about the 16th century when uh, Bacon, the great philosopher, the English philosopher, um, said that, <clears throat> that we must now... Uh, obey God's command to Adam. God said to Adam after the creation, now take the earth and subdue it. And that's what we've done. We have tried to subdue the earth. Mm -hmm. We have used it as a resource. We no longer look at it with wonder or or be thankful. We're no longer thankful for the fact that we have have a, a, a universe that works. Uh, and we uh, we are so removed, as you say, that we when you, you're in a beautiful place, uh, how often people take about twenty photographs of this beautiful place and never look at it. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, they, they are they prefer a sort of a, a synthetic or, or, uh, reproduction of it, and this is beginning to happen now in in in, in other ways. Um, and we've closed our minds to nature. And so what I'm trying to do in, in this book is show how we can perhaps introduce some practices in our lives that renews that, way, that with nat- relationship with nature. The Chinese, for example, had a... a, 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 a system that they called quiet sitting and that didn't mean you sat in the yogic position and breathed and, or anything you just sat uh, in a comfortable chair uh, at, at ease but watched the sounds of nature listened, listened to the birds looked at the insects looked at the trees looked at the sun and, and renew, keep that bond with nature. We should do that, I think, just for a start, 10 minutes a day, uh, just to renew that and to make ourselves aware of things that we just don't notice. Notice the way the birds behave, the, the, uh, the, the way the flowers come. I have a tree uh, in, uh, in just opposite my study, I mean, I live in the middle of London, so there's not much nature there, though I have a nice little garden, but the, uh, there's a tree that is huge. It, it overtowers the, the, the houses opposite me. And it's, a, it's not so good in the summer when it's all just leaves. Mm-hmm. But when the leaves start falling, you begin to see the life in that tree, different, how it's constantly changing color. 
day by day. Um, and the creatures that come and go, the squirrels, the bir different birds, the life that is going on in that tree. And it, it, it gradually, uh, every year it goes through the same system. And what we've got to understand is that tree has a life of its own. Now, that doesn't mean we start talking to the tree uh, and, and uh, you know, as if it was a human being, because it's not a human <laughs> being. It's, got a, it's entirely different from us. It's got an entirely different nature, which is mysterious to us. Uh, it, uh, and it is, but and as does every, every tree, every little animal. Uh, every, like the clouds, the, the, the universe, it has a life entirely different from ours, but one which we must learn to value, look at, wonder at, and respect. You've reminded me of a favorite novel. I bet our audience knows what I'm going to talk about. Richard Powers, The Overstory. Have you read that by any chance? No. Um, you said that some of the science of trees is, mysteries remain, but there's some very interesting science developing about mm. how trees communicate with one another yeah, and really. help one another when one tree is in distress and sends signals Oops. to each other. Richard Powers wrote a wonderful novel about it that you can really yes. access the science. Um, I'm struck by it. You've used the word wonder mm -hmm. a number of times in the conversation so far. I'm struck by how we seem to live in a in a kind of world where you have to one up the wonder to be odd. Yes. You know, like it has to be that much more incredible that yes. you've seen one canyon, you've seen you know, that kind of. Mm -hmm. And to hear you talk about the life of this tree reminds me that yes. um you can push that sense of what are you going to do to thrill me now, you know, in, in nature, and zero back in on something small and... Yes, something small uh, and, and learn to wonder at it. Right. Uh, that, that, that has a life that we don't know about, uh, that is, but that is helping to keep us in being. Uh, the, the, the way the whole universe reacts. Uh, what I do, do ch each chapter, I suggest a, a certain practice, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the one of the chapters is called sacrifice. Now we think of sacrifice of of, of, of as horrible pagans killing lovely animals uh, in temples, uh, but uh, we don't think give a thought to the millions of beasts who are slaughtered heartlessly every day in our abattoirs. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, at least in, in the ancient world, you didn't eat red meat unless it had somehow been made holy and blessed uh, and, 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 and sort of honored for what it was going to give you. Um, and uh, I forgot what I was going to go on to say. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, but the word sacrifice... Uh, actually, it comes from the Latin sacrum facere, which means to make holy. And so what, they, what the priests were doing were making that animal sacred mm. and holy or bringing out the holiness in it. And that's what we must try and do, look at that tree and see it. It's sacred. 
uh, it is uh, it fills us with wonder. It's different from us. It has an entire life of us, but it is it is a sacred thing, just as each one of us is a sacred being. Uh, and uh, learn to uh, uh, so that at the uh, if every time we during the day we look up, look at a tree or a flower or um, or a little insect or a wasp. Um, Look at that and wonder at, at the life of that being, which is utterly mysterious to us, uh, utterly precious, and on which we depend. We depend so much on tiny things in nature that we... The interconnectedness. We, we, we're, we're just right. not aware of. Right. You know, it, it struck me in listening to you um, talk about your experience in the middle of London a small garden, a tree that you are watching the evolution of year to year. Was there something about the isolation of the pandemic that you weren't doing the kind of traveling, you were not seeing people the way you probably see people that brought you back to a kind of sensibility that opened your mind to this kind of writing? I was surprised when I saw what the the core, what the essence of this book was about. Yes, because it's unlike my other books. It's not, that's right. It has this kind of, I don't think we've ever talked about this kind of thing in all of our interviews. So I'm curious about what was happening outside your your door gave you the kind of silence and isolation you needed for this. I think so, because I was spending more time in the garden and looking at that tree, and and instead of sitting on aeroplanes, and uh, traveling and speaking. And, we, and that made me start looking at nature differently. Um, and at first I, I thought, well, I'm going to write one of my, I want to write a book about this. So I suggested to my publishers uh, in a Zoom call um, that... Um, <laughs> oh, the evil Zoom. Zoom. We, had, we, we talked about <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, but I, re- I said, you know, I, I, I'll do one of my book, big books about showing the, the history of how people have uh, done, used nature, how the Chinese did it, how the Indians, the Indians did it. And they said, Karen, this time do a short one. Uh, because they said, people need to read this now. Yes. Um, and um, and you, they said, you can do the big one later. Uh, but but, the, but the, do, do a short one because... Uh, that because the, uh, we're in a terrible plight. I mean, I don't know how it's been here, in, uh, the, but we've had unprecedented heat mm-hmm. in London. Mm-hmm. Absolutely unprecedented. And of course, in, look at the terrible floods in China. Yes. Uh, where I have many friends and I've been talking to them. The, the devastation is, is shocking. And this is just the beginning um, and it's, it's no good scaring ourselves because scaring ourselves makes us sort of paralyzed and we stop, we freeze, and we don't know what to do. But instead, we've got to make a gigantic effort to pull back from the way we've mistreated nature mm-hmm. by wondering at it. So that's why I, I thought of suggesting these small things that people could do that change that could change the way we think we 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 have to change it's not enough we have to change our behavior 
uh, uh, towards nature, but we also have to change the way we think about it. Otherwise, it becomes a sheer mechanical uh, thing with, the, uh, the, with, 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 with which we're not identifying. Uh, and so, so I decided to write this little book instead. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasing your publishers. Um, when I read what you wrote about this absence of veneration for nature, that's another word that you use, I, I thought of that quote from Terry Tempest Williams about how wildness reminds us of what it means to be human. We have definitely lost that sensibility. Yes, because we are utterly dependent upon this wildness, this nature. Um, We depend upon it for every breath we we take. Uh, We depend upon the food we, we eat, uh, the food we grow. Uh, we, this is our home. It's our home. And look how we look after our homes, our houses, uh, and cherish them. Uh, and yet this nature is our home, and yet here we are trashing it. Yeah. Trashing it every day. I mean, and we still, uh, are, are in, in England anyway, uh, sitting on beaches and littering it with plastic, which is ruining marine life. Uh, And we've been told about this again and again and again, but we don't seem to take any notice. Uh, And so we we need a a change of mind. Uh, It's no good just us having uh, orders given to us, do this, do that. Right, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We've got to change the way we think and behave towards nature. Um, and so that's, that's what, I, what I was trying to do. Why don't we read the first excerpt, if you're ready yes. for that? Yes. And we're coming back to Wordsworth. We're coming back to Wordsworth. Right. It, it was a different poem this time. Um, Wordsworth recalled the luminous vision of the world that he had enjoyed as a boy, but had lost as a grown-up, rather as I had. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. He is still aware of the beauty of nature, but knows that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. He sees a tree and a field that both speak of something that hath gone. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? In my own humble way, I recall something similar. I grew up in the unspoiled Worcestershire countryside in the late 1940s and distinctly remember trying to tell my puzzled parents about something I called putsch. There was no word I knew of for what I could recall as a strange but compelling luminosity in the woods and lanes near our home that I could not make my adult companions see. They assumed I was thinking of the fairies pictured in my storybooks, 
but it was more of an impersonal, all-encompassing radiance. Once I went to school to be inducted into the rational worldview that governs modern life, I, like Wordsworth, experienced the light and glory die away and fade into the light of common day.
Ida, don't leave. Ida Shegasemi. Don't, don't leave yet. I just, I want to ask you about, you were singing in Farsi, right? Yes, that is right. What's the song about? It's actually a, a very old uh, folk Iranian song from the Bakhtiari dialect, which is where my dad is from in southern Iran. Uh-huh. And it begins with uh, how there are three things in life that we don't appreciate and we kind of take for advantage. And that's uh, uh, a moonlit night, uh, spring, and uh, youth. So make the most of it while you have it. And then it goes on to being like the typical love story that is of folk songs in Iran where someone has been lost and you are kind of mourning their loss. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank (laughs) Thank you you for being here. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theater with Karen Armstrong. Her new book is titled Sacred Nature, Restoring Our Ancient Bond with the Natural World. And I'm Carrie Miller. Karn, I'm, I'm an admirer of evangelical climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. Do, do you know of her? Have no. you read anything? She is the chief scientist now for the Nature Conservancy, but she lives in Texas. She's an evangelical. So she is able to go into churches yes. to um, talk with credibility. Yes. Uh, interfaith communities to talk about why conservation is an act of faith. What And she's incredibly effective. What I'm curious about from you is whether you think there is a role for contemporary faith leaders to ring the bell and increase the urgency about climate change, given some of the way the texts are interpreted in some of these evangelical communities. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's wonderful. I'd love to hear about this, this woman. And, uh, of course, uh, th- we, we must, we have to change things. And um, so uh, we, have, we, have, we have a mission, and we ha- it's terrible that priests and abbots and nuns are not doing this. I was talking yesterday um, uh, uh, to, to a group of people, and they were pointing out that there were people doing things about nature, mm-hmm. um, pointing out that this, that, and the other. But they, we've got... It's, this is so dangerous. We're in such peril uh, that uh, every single uh, bishop or rabbi... Imam, uh, every single Buddhist peer should be talking uh, to their flocks about saving nature because it is sacred. Um, uh, we, we've lost that sense of sacrality in the West, but we must renew it. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely urgent. And yes, religious leaders have a major work to do uh, because be, uh, uh, speaking out about this and, but not in a way that terrifies people or not in a way that's endlessly scolding people because that just makes people seize up. Right. I think we, that people need to be taught how to change their minds, as I've tried to do in that book. Yes. Little by little, introducing little new habits day by day. Uh, 
And we talk about, we've got to change, I've changed my mind, we say. Well, now we really need a change of mind. Um, and we need to make a real effort about this. And certainly religious leaders should be, uh, be, be and, 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 but it, they've got to do it in an, a certain way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the Pope has brought out an encyclical. Right. But it, it's not very readable. <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> I haven't read it. No, there you go. <laughs> All right, um, because uh, it, 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 we should be moved by it, and not just frightened. It's no good just te- scolding us and uh, for our misdeeds and telling dreadful tales about uh, what's going to happen to us, because that just makes us seize up. Is what you know. Um, when people t- used to talk to me as a child about hell, mm-hmm. it didn't mm-hmm. make me any better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it ju- I, just, <laughs> I just sort of seized up. But so we, they, we've got, they've got to teach us, uh, as I've tried to do, uh, from the pulpits to change the way we think about nature. The reason I asked you about uh, evangelical communities, there is a... And I, I don't know how persistent this has been, but there was a time when the focus was on the next, the next life, yes. and not to have to be too concerned yes. about Absolutely. caring for the world here. Not just evangelicals; that was certainly present in my Catholic faith. It was. It definitely. We. I don't think we ever had a single talk about nature. Or, or, or the beauty of the world, um, it was all about getting into heaven uh, and not getting to, going to hell. Mm-hmm. Or, or, uh, and we always had a retreat, and as, a, as in the convent too, when I was a nun, um, we had a, a retreat every year going through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Jesuit order. And the first day was all about hell um, and, um, and death and um, terrible stories about people sort of dropping dead, you know, in, in the street and, and, and they hadn't been to confession and that kind of thing and ended up in hell. And this, the, the thing is, this, uh, uh, and heaven, sound, I remember I, my, my grandmother actually uh, was told when being told that she was going to be singing "Glory be to God forever," she said, "I don't want to go to heaven. It sounds <laughs> not, not too boring." <laughs> she got she got uh, a severe telling off for this, but uh, but this but you see uh, this this just paralyzes us, and it's all about the next world, yeah, not this one. And we're living in a we're living in a world in a paradise, really. Uh, 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 the beauty of the beauty of your country, for mm-hmm. this country, for example, it's 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 amazing. You know, when you fly over it, you see it, the the, dif- the, the difference, the, the different versions. Right. It's amazing, and it, and beautiful Britain too, in parts. <laughs> <laughs> the parts we have ruined with horrible cities. Uh, so, but we're not taught. To that, to that see, look at nature, as we are taught to how to read poetry, to appreciate poetry, or to listen to music mm-hmm. and learn to appreciate that. Uh, we, we, 
we need, we need to, be culti- to cultivate these things. We need help to do it. I wonder if because, and I don't know, maybe this did not happen in Britain, but of course uh, climate change and the answers to it has been politicized here. And I think that may be why some faith leaders shrink away from um, speaking candidly and persuasively to their congregations and their communities about it. It may be, but it, may, it is also the fact that there isn't very much talk about nature in Christianity. Ah. You see, we've got St. Francis, and everyone brings him out. Uh, uh, but he's basically the only one. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, the fact that he you know, talks about brother, son, and sister moon, and this is lovely, and I put it in the book. You yes, know, this, you this did. This lovely poem. Yeah. Um, and and he, he, he saw the beauty of nature, but we don't, we're concentrating on the next life more than, more than on this one, or on the life of Christ, or the life of saints. And this is all very edifying, uh, but it's not making us uh, look at the world that God has supposedly created, and, uh, had, and, and which, which we're in which we are daily destroying. Why do you think the Bible does not speak more about... Again, you said in your book that there is this perception from the Bible that nature is subservient to our needs. Yes. Um, It's it's because, uh, as I think I said earlier, uh, the Bible isn't interested in nature. Um, it's, uh, it is interest, it, it, it has found sacrality, and this is important too in historical events. Mm-hmm. It sees God, the divine in history. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but, and, and this is important, and, and we, we have to try and see the, the, that, uh, the sacrality of, of history, um, and, and when it's going wrong, we have to rush in and save it. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to do that and reform and look after the poor, for example, which we're told about. And, but there's very little about nature. That by, uh, and if it is, uh, there's, there's, I think I give a, a, a quote from one of the Psalms mm-hmm. where, you know, the, nature is subservient to God. Uh, you know, the, the, everything, all, all the birds and the, and the leaves and everything, they do what God wants. But God is in those leaves. God is in those mountains and in these, is, these trees. And, and, and we should be looking at the sacrality and divinity in that and making ourselves look at it. Sacrum, sacrum facere, I should have said this earlier, to make holy. We should make a habit of when we walk around the uh, the world, looking at a tree and looking at seeing the divine in it, mm-hmm. uh, looking at it and saying, that be- look at that tree, look at that river, look at those wonderful animals playing. Uh, uh, and the divine is in all those things because God as, is everywhere. Now, Thomas Aquinas knew that. He says, God is everywhere. And wherever God is, God is there holy. He's there holy. He's ho- in, and so, but we lost that perception, and we haven't cultivated it. And the Bible doesn't do it for us. Uh, but the, by, the by, it's important that we look at history, too. Uh, because 
we, because uh, wonderful things do happen in history, and it's important to rescue uh, uh, people who are suffering uh, around us and uh, change history and make it uh, uh, adhere to a more charitable, sacred world where we love one another, where we respect one another, we see the divine in one another, but now also see it, the divine in nature too, which we, uh, and not see it simply as a resource. I mean, th- this really intersects with the work that you've done on compassion. Yes. Every now and then I check in to see what's happening with the Charter for Compassion because we've been talking about it yes. for many years. What... what Maybe we should explain what it is. Could you explain how it came about? Yes. Um, I won the TED Prize uh, some years ago. Uh, TED, you all know about, I'm sure. Yeah, TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, and they gave me a prize, and they give you a wish for a better world, which TED will make happen. And I knew... <laughs> <laughs> TED, whoever he is, will make it happen. Uh, and I, I knew once what I wanted, because I was sick and tired of hearing uh, religious people uh, fulminating about the sins of other people. Or, uh, and and when, what, what we're told to do is to love one another. Uh, and that compassion, the ability to feel with others, is seen as absolutely central to every single religious uh, tradition. And... Um, and that means everyone, not just our own particular bodies. But, and, and, and we should look at uh, you know, the, 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 the lack of compassion in our politics, um, in, our, the way, in, in our class systems, the fact that we should be horrified that we have, I have people sleeping in the street in London, uh, a rich city. We've been seeing how much money the Queen has had. Um, I wish she'd just given it to some more uh, of, 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 the, of the people who are in, in dire straits. And going to, things are going to get worse, as we know. Mm. So we got together, Ted got together, a whole group of people we met in Geneva. And there was uh, somebody representing every single world faith. It's incredible. So there were there was a, 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 a mufti from Egypt. Uh, there were Buddhists, uh, various kinds of Christians, uh, Jews, Muslims. Everyone was there. We sat around the table, and together we worked out a charter, uh, which I which I eventually pieced together. We, and after afterwards, we we emailed each other and said, "What do you think of this?" Etc. And we presented it. It has uh, uh, some good work is being done, but the best of it is in Pakistan. Wow! Um, There, they, there, I I go there frequently, and um, a great friend, a businessman. um, I, I got him to cut. I know, I know, he is a businessman. Who, who does wonderful good works. He really does. And his family support him. They, they, they own all the big hotels in Pakistan. And they, he has to do his job with them, but they respect what he's trying to do. And I said, I, I, want you to, I had him come to, to, the, to us in Geneva to listen. And he said, at first, he said, I didn't understand this. He said, but then I got it. <laughs> and he did get it. What he got... 
he, he, he put out a, um, a, a questionnaire in Karachi and said, because we were making cities of compassion, where the mayor would, uh, would declare it was going to be a compassionate city, what would you like to see in Karachi that would make, what would you like us to focus on? They said education. Right, he said. So he got together a group of uh, educa- leading educationalists in Pakistan, and together they introduced compassion into all every subject of the curriculum. Wow. Uh, wow. In terms of um, in history, for example, learning you know how people behave hugely important in history, in in literature, um, in science. Uh, and uh, ev- and so, and every then now, uh, there all the schools in the in the province of Sindh have become compassionate schools, wow. and they have to they have to take this syllabus, and but not only that because these these government schools tend to be for the well-to-do children, mm-hmm. the richer children. So each school has to take. Uh, partner with one of the poor schools in the poor areas, and they play together. They 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 play cricket together. They call it compassionate cricket, <laughs> and um, and they share books. And the children, the rich children, see the way right. how the poor children live instead of living in in a in a, in a dream. Uh, so that, as I say, all the and they're now going into the next the next state as well. Um, and he, no, he, he, he really is extra, because we need, he, he's the best. Mm-hmm. A bit of it, some of it's a bit airy fairy in other, other ways. <laughs> you know, we're going to be a uh, loving, loving, loving person from down in this day forward when we're not. We have to try and make it as practical as possible. But, but that's why I see yes. what you're writing here as a continuation, as an intersection yeah. of your work. On it, compassion. It is, uh, because each chapter tells you something that you've got to do in your own life uh, to start building up this sense of right. uh, love of nature. It's no good just wandering out hoping that you'll get a little words worthy and uplift now and again. Right. Uh, we have to... Uh, changing our minds yes. means changing the way we live and right. the way we think and the way we behave. Um, and making... Uh, so. And, and it, it is a form of compassion. Uh, we have to be compassionate now to the environment, uh, to, to, the, to nature, instead of just using it as, as a resource and, and bullying it, as it were. I have to ask you about the Queen, because <laughs> we talked about it in the green room, and Karn had some very interesting things to say. Your, <laughs> your, you left the UK, what, just as the Queen died? Uh, uh, no, she just uh, just before she died. Just before just, she died. No, just after she died. Okay, just after she died. And you have been puzzled by seeing the outpour, just the I'm the fervency of the emotion. Yes, I'm absolutely Why? astonished. Why? Well, we hardly ever see the Queen, um, and uh, and and I, I I'm very. I I've, I've always felt rather sorry for the woman. I, what a life she's had, frankly. Uh, but, um, but you know, she's and she was ninety six. Yes, um, it was time she was going to die. Clearly, 
And I'm very glad. I'm glad she died so quickly because uh, I didn't, wouldn't wanted anyone to have a long, protracted death. But we now know how very rich the royal family are. And we've got this massive divide in the country of, of massive poverty, which is going to get worse because of the Ukraine war and, and, and the price of gas going up. And, yes. Uh, things uh, households are not going to be able to heat their homes. Um, so I am I, I'm puzzled. I'm a bit scared about going home. Um, and I, but I, I'm very puzzled as to what what has what this has happened. And and we were talking about whether this is nostalgia, um, a, a sense that. She was an icon of consistency and stability in a world that feels chaotic and unpredictable. She seemed, that seems to have happened. I, I'm puzzled by it, I have to say. Um, uh, it seem, I, it's, I'll have to look at it hard when I get home and, and, and see it. But I, it's, it's almost a kind of... But it it went 20 years ago, you see, when Diana got killed. Mm -hmm. It was the other way around. Everyone was furious with the Queen. Yes. And mourning Diana. (coughs) Maybe the Queen stands in as as God in a kind of way. You you know, uh, as somebody that's distant. Yes. Revered. on another plane from us, in a way, at least economically. Um, and um, that has, gives them some sense of identity mm-hmm. and meaning as what, what it means to be British. I find that extraordinary. Um, I'm very puzzled by it. Um, and uh, we... we uh, well, what, what can I say? I, <laughs> <laughs> we see your puzzlement. Yes. <laughs> I know. How about one last excerpt from the book? Oh, right. Okay. Right. And these are in the closing pages, I think, of near the, near the end of the book. So, to glimpse the sacrality of the natural world requires a degree of quiet and solitude that is hard to come by today. Indeed, we seem to find silence alien and often deliberately eliminate it from our lives. We wear earphones while exercising or walking in a park and chatter tirelessly on our mobile phones on a deserted beach. As a result, the sounds of nature have retreated and become increasingly distant from our minds and hearts. If we want to halt the environmental crisis... We need first, like Coleridge, to seek a silent receptiveness to the natural world, bringing it into our lives little by little every day. As Coleridge feels the hush of nature harmonising with the stillness of his own mind, Coleridge promises his baby son that he will not grow up in towns and cities, as the poet himself did, but will wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores, immersed in nature, he will see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible, 
of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. As a result of his attentiveness, Coleridge did not experience a deity confined to heaven like the god of Newton or Descartes. Instead, like nearly all the great poets, mystics, and philosophers we have met in this book, he sees the divine as inseparable from nature. In an earlier poem, The Aeolian Harp, he had asked his readers to cultivate a similar awareness for themselves. Of that one life within us and abroad, which meets all motion and becomes its soul, a light in sound, a sound like power in light, rhythm in all thought and joyous everywhere. Thank you. 
Thank you. Oh, beautiful. What a-